You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Great to see you and be with you this morning, and I uh, much like Dan echo that, and there's some new faces here today that I didn't get a chance to say hello to and kind of give you a shout out. I'm grateful that you're here, and at River, we just try to keep it pretty simple. To be real honest with you, what you see is what you get. We try not to make much of ourselves. We just try to make as much as we can about Jesus because uh, He's the one that we need. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who rose again. And, and so as a church, our desire is just to help every person that we possibly can to experience that changed life that comes through knowing Jesus and following Him the rest of our life. And no greatest thing has happened in my life and no greater thing is ha- can or ever will happen in your life than actually having that relationship with Him. We're on the tail end of our, our walk through the Gospel of John and I've got a fall series kicked out or teed up in my mind. I'm excited about it. We're going to talk about wisdom and wisdom for life. But uh, we're at the stage where Jesus is preparing his followers that he's about to die. It was kind of hitting me, and I'd never had this thought before. At least, I don't remember having this thought. I'm at a stage where I forget the things that I've forgotten. You know what I mean? Some of you do. Some of you are like, I don't understand that, Sean, but some of you know what I'm talking about. So maybe I have had a thought and just forgot that I thought it. But anyway... You know, here's Jesus. Most often when somebody's passing away, think about someone in hospice care, what a wonderful ministry those ministries uh, has been. And many of you have walked through that with your parents or grandparents. But here Jesus is the one who's about to, to die. And his whole time is focused on those who are there, getting them ready. And he's about to take upon him the sins of the world. And in fact, he's dying for the very people he's caring about. And he's not sitting there, you know, irritated or upset or frustrated. He's caring for them, that he knows it's about to rock their world. In fact, as he tells them this morning, he says, yeah, I've told you that I'm leaving and you're grieving. You're you're sad that you're losing me. None of you have actually asked me where I'm going. Kind of a hint, newsflash, if you don't know it, we all tend to think about ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, you're just thinking about what you're missing out on. You're actually not asking me where I'm going and what's going on. You should be thinking about something a little bit bigger. You're just busy focused on what you're not getting anymore. But he goes on to tell them, to encourage them, that he's about to send the Holy Spirit to help them. To He's trying to lift up their spirits, to cheer them up, if you will, to encourage them. We, Whenever we're down, we most of us like to be cheered up. And I think there's sometimes that we're down or discouraged that deep down, we don't want to be cheered up. You kind of know what I mean? Sometimes we just want to sit and wallow in that a little bit. And I I don't know if that's okay or not. You know, God gave us all these emotions. I think it's probably okay for a time. For the rest of our lives, for a really long time, no, along the way we need to find some hope and joy in the middle of that. But Jesus is trying to encourage them. I remember when I was a kid, I had uh, I needed braces badly. In fact, my my front teeth were so uh, I don't know pronounced or whatever. I couldn't naturally close my my mouth, my lips. In fact, I would my my front teeth wouldn't cut anything. I would kind of like a carnivore, kind of like tear it and chew it. And so uh, to get me ready to have braces, the dentist had to take out five teeth. So pulled five teeth, you know, some afternoon. I remember sitting on the couch and I'm not sure what was up with that. And maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's a natural thing. Some of you might say that's totally normal. But the dentist told my parents that I should suck on tea bags to keep my mouth moist. 
and, uh, you know, to help healing or whatever. Some of you are like, whoa, that's weird. And others are like, uh-huh, I know what you're talking about. Well, let me just say, if you've ever sucked on tea bags, it is not a pleasant experience. So I'm sitting there, face swollen, hurting, sucking on bitter, horrible tea bags, and, you know, and it's doing funky things in my mouth and just like, you know, drooling or whatever. And it's not a fun thing. And on top of it, I was, I played baseball as a kid. I was our team's catcher, and that night was our last game, and I couldn't play the game because I got my teeth out. So I was not a happy camper. I was miserable sitting on the couch and thinking I missed the last game of the season, and I had that, you know, as, as most little kids do, you know, I'm letting the team down, you know, and all of that going through your head. And my dad comes along, and he knew I was down in the dumps, as it were, and to cheer me up, he said, son, I want you to know that even though it's the last game, you actually made the town's all-star team. And he kind of had insider information. That wasn't supposed to be announced until after the game and all of that. And I have to admit, as a kid, that cheered me up. It perked me out. I didn't feel any better. The tea bags didn't taste any better, for sure. But I kind of like, okay, that, that kind of gave me something to look forward to. That's what Jesus is doing this morning when he's telling his closest friends that even though he's leaving, it's better if he leaves. It's better if he dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And it's far better if the Holy Spirit comes. And he wants them to understand how it's better. He's been talking a little bit about this the last couple of chapters, but he's really kind of diving in. So this morning, I want us to see the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life, the three different ways that the Holy Spirit, what He is up to and what He does. So look with me if you would, and we're going to pick up there in verse, verse 7 of, of John chapter 16. The Bible says this, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, he will not come to you. We talked about that before. The helper that he, he convicts us, he encourages us, he challenges us, he kicks us in the rear end when we need it. He, he lifts us up. He, he, he is the one that guides us, and we'll talk a little more about that as well, in our life. He's the helper. He says, he won't come unless I go away. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, here's what he's going to do. He will convict the world. This is, this is people who don't know Jesus. These are people who are not followers of Jesus. He's going to convict them concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world, he's talking about Satan, is judged. Now, will be judged, is already judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Jesus is saying, He's like, guys, I was 101. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to get 201. You're not ready for it yet, but He's going to be the one that finishes up what I began and going to teach you through that, all of that. He says, For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, He says, He will glorify Me, He will take what is Mine, and He will declare it to you. He's going to take what's His. He doesn't speak of His own authority. He doesn't speak of His own stuff. He's going to take what I have, and He's going to give it to you. Even though I'm leaving, He is going to continue to press into your life all the things that I have brought to the table. 
and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Three simple areas of ministry that the Holy Spirit does on this earth. Ever since Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and once He ascended into heaven at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and, and a presence and a power until this day functions at this world invisibly but powerfully all around us. Three simple things. Jesus first said, I'm going to send Him, and He's going to convict, not accuse, notice that, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict people who do not know me, who do not follow me, who've never surrendered their life to me. He's going to convict even religious people who've not really committed their life to me, convict them of their sin, convict them of, their, of righteousness, and convict them of, of judgment. You see, this word convict, it means more than just accuse or to blame. You and I can accuse people of things. We can blame people for things. But what Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is going to work in the lives of people who do not follow him, uh, Jesus, who do not follow Him, in such a way that they are going to become convinced that they are sinners before a holy God. That it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict inside the soul where that person hears that they have done wrong, and they recognize it, and they accept it. Now, every parent knows that every kid ever born on this planet is predisposed to not take the blame for anything, right? And you have to work hard to get your kids toned up to stuff. The older they get, the harder it gets. You know what I mean? In fact, by the way, mom and dad, early on, help them early on, because if you don't start that out earlier on, you are really up against it when they are older. But it's we have to work at that because we, by nature, all of us are born wanting to be innocent, wanting to be have never done anything wrong. We want to be, you know, just absolved and exonerated of everything. It's not my fault. And we blame it on everybody else. And it starts early on when we write our names in crayon on our parents' wall and we blame our sister for it, you know, or we just do all kinds of crazy stuff. But what Jesus is telling us you can't pull that one over on God. The God, the Holy Spirit, works in such a way that He brings an accusation to our soul and He begins to create such a conviction that we begin to agree with Him that you are right, God. I have sinned before you. I have disobeyed you. I have done wrong. I have missed exactly what you told me to do. I have done exactly that which you told me not to do. And the Holy Spirit is one that convicts people of their sin. You and I can't do that. We play a role in that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the, ultimately, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Folks, if the Holy Spirit were not work, at work in this world, no one would become a follower of Jesus. Bottom line, I don't care what what your view of predestination and election and all of those things, on all of that, the bottom line is, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us that we've done wrong. When you and I have ever felt conviction of that, that's the evidence of God at work in our heart. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our heart. Apart from that, we're going to make ourselves innocent before God. And innocent people before God can never be forgiven of God and can never have a relationship with Him. Jesus also said that, that He would convict uh, the world of righteousness. Convict the world of sin, 
because they don't believe in Jesus. In other words, they're not saved, they're not forgiven of their sins, so that conviction must come so that they will believe. And then he also convicts the world of righteousness. In the Old Testament, the righteous standard of God was the law. That's why there were hundreds of laws. God wasn't wanting to create little hamster trails for us or little you know, mouse trails where we had to jump through hoops and you know, our whole life. What God was trying to actually do is to say that I am so holy and you are so messed up. Look at the hundreds of ways that you are messed up. And he wanted the people to realize that. When Jesus came on the scene, he was the standard of righteousness. The people looked at him and listened to him and saw him. And they heard the words of God, and He was that standard. That's why when He did the miracle catch, when He told the, his, the apostles to go out and to launch into the deep and to catch this, you know, to, to, to catch the fish, and they're like, Master, we fished all night. We caught nothing. Everything you're telling us to do is wrong. We are the, prof- we are the industry professionals. We are the professional fishermen. You are clueless. You're nothing but a construction carpenter guy. Leave the fishing to us. And nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. And say, launch out, and you know the story. The nets were breaking, they filled the boat. And when Peter looked at Jesus, he saw the standard of righteousness of God. And he said, Lord, get away from me because I am a sinful man. The Holy Spirit was at work. Now, he hadn't come in fullness and presence and all of that, but the Holy Spirit was bringing conviction into his life because he saw the standard of righteousness of God himself. And Jesus is telling us that when the Holy Spirit comes, because he's going back to the Father, Jesus is going back to the Father, the Holy Spirit is now going to be that standard of righteousness. It's a standard not in one location like Jesus was. It's not a standard of the law that's being taught among one people like the Jewish nation. It's a standard of the Holy Spirit who would live inside every follower of Jesus that would ultimately would span the globe, a conviction that would spread across this world and to be a part of the process of winning a world who is far from God but bringing them into that, saving that relationship with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit would do that. And He, would, he also would come and He would convict the world of judgment. Convict the world that they're sinners, lost people that they're sinners. Convict the world that God is righteous and they're not. And convict the world that the enemy is judged. That's what he says, right? He doesn't say convict the world that they're judged. He says he would convict the world that the ruler of this world is judged in verse 11. You see, here's a subtle thing, and I want you to catch this. There is no hope for fallen angels at this point in history. When they sinned against their holy God and lifted up in pride against the God of heaven, they were doomed immediately, never to have an opportunity to be forgiven and to be absolved. They stand condemned. They are judged in that moment. You see, in the end times, they will face judgment just like the world does. But their judgment has already happened. It, they are judged. And the enemy, Satan of God, is the ruler, the prince of this world, some of your translations might say. That means that he is in charge. He is large and in charge of the world around us. And ultimately, he lies behind all mayhem and disobedience and all lies and all murder and hatred and all of the things that we look at and it's like, how is that possible? You're getting a glimpse of his character, of his world, 
when we see that. And what Jesus is telling us is the Holy Spirit comes to bring a conviction onto the soul of the person that doesn't yet know God to recognize that they are on the wrong team. That they, because they are under their ruler, are judged as well. But this is written in such a way that it's not a condemnation. It is a warning as well as an offer of hope that the Holy Spirit is coming. God isn't sending the Holy Spirit to just do a victory lap and like, oh yeah, you're messed up and you're a sinner and you're awful and you're unrighteous and you're judged and you're condemned. That's not what the Holy Spirit is up to today. The Holy Spirit is actually convicting people of sin so that they can recognize their sin and be saved. Convicting us that, yeah, we're messed up, but God is not, and God wants to forgive us. And by the way, we are judged until we receive Him. You see, the Holy Spirit is the motivator in a person's heart to step out of this crazy, messed up world that we're in and to step in through the blood of Jesus Christ into Christ's kingdom. That's what the Holy Spirit is up to in the world around us. Now, for you and for me, this ought to be awesome news. This ought to be incredible news. This means that God is at work invisibly in the people around you. This means that the most hardened person around you is like, why can you go to church? And I can't get into that God thing. And why are you this and that? That they're... That God is at work convicting inside of their soul in a way that you can't possibly do. Working in their life, at work, to bring them a recognition of their wrong. Mom and Dad, for your little sinners, that's really good news. It's a lot easier, by the way, to parent kids who know Jesus and that the Holy Spirit's at work in their life. It just, you've got like an insider, like, going on in there as you work with it. But God is at work invisibly in the lives around us, family and friends and co-workers, because He told us that's what His job is. Have you ever worked with anybody that didn't do their job? It's not a lot of fun, right? Because you end up doing some of their job for them. Or because they didn't do their job, it kind of messes you up doing your job. Like, it just doesn't work well. Does God ever not do His job? The answer to that would be no. Because if He did, it would be called sin. It would be called irresponsibility and disobedience. So the Holy Spirit's job is to convict this world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What is the Holy Spirit then doing in the lives of people around you? He's convicting them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, even when you don't know it. Now, you and I, this is where we make a mistake because we're a see-it-and-believe-it kind of people. We believe it when we see it. That's just who we are as human nature, right? Don't be like the, you know, the kid that, you know, the, if you bake a cake or something in the oven and you put all the stuff in there, they're like, well, I can't see it cooking. I know the doors have windows on them. I know they have lights on, but just work with me. Think old school. Like, is it really working? You know, you open it up and like, my, you know, mom or dad, whoever's baking, is like, it's not going to work if you keep opening that door. Leave it shut. We have to recognize that inside those people, regardless of what's being spoken on the outside, that God's doing something on the inside. And we have to have a bigger perspective. That's what Jesus is telling us this morning, is that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people around us. 
So not only should that be good news for us, but pragmatically that should tell you and me, reading this truth means you and I should pray for those people. Prayer. We should pray that God would work in their lives. We should pray for them specifically. And generally, I think it's helpful. I mean, if you don't know everybody in your neighborhood, pray for your neighborhood and your street and pray for the neighbors you know and your coworkers and family and friends and pray for them that God would work in their life in such a way. And pray for opportunities for you to be a part of that process. You see, God the Holy Spirit works, but He works through you and me in other people's lives. Where does the Holy Spirit express Himself the most, if you will, today? It's in the li- He's in the lives... Where does He express Himself? It's in the lives of us as followers of Jesus. So as you and I live, as you and I talk, as you and I invest our lives... We should have a boldness before God that that He is working through us and people around us. And there should be a boldness in our prayer asking for God to work through us in the lives of other people. I've been in, in church an awfully long time in my life, and I've sat there. I do not have the gift of evangelism. Some people debate whether or not it is a gift or not. My experience, most people that say it's not a gift are the people who have the gift, and they just think everybody ought to be able to do what they do. I'm not good at that. And some of you are like, yeah, I feel guilty because I've not talked to people I should, and how do I do that? Can, Can I tell you that based on the truth of this Scripture, that you can pray for people, and that is the right starting point. And then you can participate with what the Holy Spirit is up to in people's lives with them. You don't have to open your mouth or say anything. You just need to make a commitment to pray for them. And then when you pray for them, you ought to care for them in some way. You know, your neighbor might be a lawn snob, or if you volunteered to mow their, his lawn or her lawn, be like, yeah, please don't ever touch my lawn again. You did a terrible job. It'd be like me cutting your hair, Sean. You'd be like... Hey, don't ever, like, you're not allowed to get anywhere near me with scissors, you know? So you got to know, like, what your abilities are and what your family or friend or neighbor wants, wants and what you can do to care. But can I tell you, we live in a world where just paying attention to people and listening to people and actually asking them a question or two about their life shows more care than you will ever know. Most conversations go along the way where you introduce something and then somebody spends the next five minutes talking about themselves. We tend to roll that way as people. But when you and I flip the script and we ask other people about themselves, I don't mean in a weird way, I don't mean interrogation, but when it's appropriate and normal, right? We have this rule, if you're at River, you're not allowed to be a weird Christian. There's enough weird Christians everywhere around us. Don't be that one. But you, when you just have a natural relationship and you ask questions and you care, and when you know they're going to walk into a tough weekend or their mom's in hospice and you ask and just... It speaks volumes in their life and you're praying for them. You're doing two of the three steps for that person to come to know Jesus. So it's prayer and care. And when we do those two things well, that leads to share. And it creates opportunities to talk to them about God and who Jesus is. Sometimes... This is, this is not rocket science. rocket science. This is something that we should do with the people in our lives. Sometimes it takes a long time. My wife and I, 
invested over 30 years in, in her parents, praying for them, caring for them, trying to model. That was our prayer. I'm like, God, just help me to be a good son-in-law. I don't want to mess up and be a bad anything, right? And if you have family, you know that. Sometimes you've got you to deal with your own heart and pride and selfishness and sin and not want to act the way you should. And, and we tried to genuinely care for them and shared along the way until 30 years later, last year, my wife had the opportunity, both of them, to lead them to, to a relationship with Christ. And so it's a prayer and care and share, but sometimes it's a very fast kind of thing. I, I flew, I would love to tell you that I do this every time I fly, but I don't, to keep it real. But this, I had a, when I went to California a couple, a month or two ago, I had an opportunity to share the gospel with both Lyft drivers that we rode with. It was an amazing conversation. Like They were interested in asking and talking more, and I, this time I said, God, would you give me an opportunity to share on the plane? as I flew. And to be honest with you, I prayed that and I kind of forgot about it. And I didn't really have an opportunity going down from Atlanta. I was in Atlanta for a couple of days and came back and it was like a, like a 948 flight out of Atlanta at night and I was coming back home. And to be honest with you, I'm just kind of tired. I love the little TVs on the back of the plane. You can kind of just pop it on and man, I'm searching for the movie but as soon as I sit down and you know, and I pop the earbuds in and I kind of ignored the, the, the woman that was sitting in the window no, next to, it, to me and I caught out of the corner of my eye after the plane had taken off and she seemed to be wrestling stuff. And I could kind of tell she didn't fly much. I just the way she was kind of acting and, and she was trying to like kick in the seat and I took my earbuds off and and I realized she wanted, I thought she wanted to put her armrest up, and so I moved it up, and she was like, no, she was trying to put it back down. So I hit the button and told her to lean into it, and she kind of leaned a little bit, and she looked at me, I was like, is that all? I'm like, yeah, that's about all you get. You know, it's not very comfortable. You could, I said, you can move your bag into the middle, you know, nobody's going to sit in front of you. And anyway, I asked her where she was headed. I kind of, by then, I was like, okay, I'll talk, you know, put the pause on the movie, and it was just obvious she was open to talking today. It's hard to talk on planes because earbuds and headphones and every other thing. And anyway, and it's obvious she wasn't doing all that. And I said, where are you headed? And I said, you headed home? And, and she said, no. And she said, I'm going to my sister's funeral. And I thought, okay, we're headed to one of those conversations. And found out her sister just passed away a couple of weeks ago and headed to Vermont. And, and I'm like, okay, God, you, how do I, where are you going with this? <laughs> How do I start talking? And so the natural thing without me interrogating her, did you go to the church? you believe in God? Where are you with Jesus? Would you like to accept him today? You know, I said, so who's doing the, you know, I asked her about her sister and all of that and heard, heard her, a little bit of her story. And I said, so who's doing the funeral? And uh, she said, the pastor of her church. And I said, wow, is that where you grew up? And did you go to that church? Yeah, I went to that church, told me all about it. And uh, she lives now in Arizona. I said, so do you go to church now? I'm trying to know where she's coming from. I've learned to just ask questions and not to just, you know, poke at people. It kind of helps to care before you share. I was taught to share without care and a little bit of prayer, but it's a whole lot better to prayer. I know that's not good English, but it's a whole lot better to pray in prayer care and then share. And so as I heard all of her stories, she, you know, she said, no, I don't go to church, couldn't find it. I really like the Bible and I, I really want you know, to listen to that. And I don't want people just telling me what they think. I want them to just, you know, I want to know what the Bible says. And she told me some other things. I'm thinking, wow. And she's like, I really love God. And okay. And I listened more and more. And 
And I said, well, I'm a pastor. I don't usually tell people I'm a pastor. It's kind of like sitting next to somebody. You, know, you're, you don't want to sit next to an IRS agent. There are just certain people you don't want to know what they do. You're kind of like, okay. <laughs> you know, you want to step back. And so I've learned just to leave that off the table and just be a normal person in their world. But for her, I could tell it would be meaningful. And she was kind of surprised by that. And and I, and I asked her about, you know, when she first began to have that real relationship with God, she talked glowing about God. She said, oh, my parents, and long story short, and but I didn't hear anything about Jesus. And so I, so I asked her, I said, so, you know, you, where does Jesus and the fact that He died on the cross for your sins and rose again, where does that fit in your love for God? She kind of thought about it and looked. She's like, well, I, I don't really know, you know. And I kind of thought, wow. And I said, well, for me, that's the center of my love for God. Is that God first loved me and sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. And I, and I talked quite a bit more about it as we would here. And she looked at me and she said, wow. And I could tell, I mean, she was leaning over the middle seat in between us. And, and tears began flowing down her eyes. And she said, wow. She said, that's so deep. She said, I'm just, I'm like frosting on a cake. I'm just up here. And she was right. I love God. And I see him in the clouds and the trees and in people. And she was all up here. There was nothing about Jesus. Folks, she wasn't a follower of Jesus, despite loving the Bible and despite loving God and all of that. And she was like so many religious people in churches and in the world today. And so I shared the gospel with her even more and I gave her a track, gave her some other things to point her to. She didn't end up trusting Christ on a plane. I would love to think that, that uh, I wish she would have. I'd like to think she's going to. But in the, whole, in the time that we had and what was there, that was what she needed. You see, I prayed generically. I showed a little bit of care, helped somebody with a seat, asked where she's from, leaned in and about the funeral and all of that. And it led to such an easy way to share with somebody. What would happen if all of us regularly just tried to make a point of praying and caring for people? And as we care along the way, we'll find opportunities. Talk to them. You might not be able to go share as much as I was able to on the plane, but to just to step up. And whether you're inviting them to church or other things, but you see... What Jesus is telling us, this is the Holy Spirit's job. And it's the first one on the list. That He's at work in people all around us. We should expect that. Second thing, and I've got to move on, that the Holy Spirit does. Not only does He convict the world of these things, but this is His relationship to the world. But now His ministry to us as followers of Jesus, He shifts gears. In verse 12, He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says, guys, the Holy Spirit has a ministry in the world around you. But He has a ministry for you as well. Because there's a lot more you need to know, and I can't tell you, but the Spirit of truth... He's going to guide you. He's going to tell you about those things. 
Three times in John 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Truth. And I looked up, and it kind of caught my attention. You know, the, the word truth is in the Gospel of John more times than any other book of the Bible. 21 times it's mentioned. The next book that has the next most is 11 times, and it's the book of Psalms that's like, I don't know, three or four times longer than the Gospel of John. Most books just mention it four, five, or six times. 21 times John does. Listen to these. John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. This is about Jesus. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is spirit, John 4, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John 8, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 15, 16, we just said, He's called the Spirit of truth. John 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Do you think God cares about you and me knowing truth? The Holy Spirit will guide us into truth, the Bible says. When do you need a guide? Whenever you are lost and don't know how to get where you're trying to go. Or you're at least confused. And you usually need a guide to go someplace you have never been before. It's not just lost, you just have never been there even. And you need somebody to tell you to know how to go there but guides don't just send you, they go with you. They help you every step of the way. See, get the picture. God is telling us you need truth in your life and you've not been there before. In other words, we are all immersed in lies, in darkness, in confusion. And it's the Holy Spirit's job for our whole life as followers of Jesus to guide you and me into that which is true. To reveal the truth of God to us, to re reveal the truth about ourselves to ourselves, to help us to understand and believe the truth. Now, truth isn't just something that you believe. It's not just something you expect, except it's something you live. It's, it's, it's what changes your life. You see, we know that the enemy of this world has brought lies. In fact, the, the world around us doesn't believe and receive Jesus because their eyes are covered. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction to open the eyes of people to that. But even after you and I see our sin, and even after we see the righteousness and goodness of God, and we realize we've got two choices in life, we can either choose to live the way we're going and be judged eternally separated from God forever with our leader, Satan, or we can get off that ship. And by faith, we can receive Jesus as Lord of our life and receive His salvation and escape the judgment. And once we, once we enter into that forgiveness, that grace of God in our life that we sing about, the grace of God that we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, the God, the Holy Spirit, still needs to peel back lies out of our life. Our whole life, until you know Jesus, has been immersed in all kinds of lies. And the nature of lies, we've told about it before, is they go unseen. That's the whole point. 
They don't, they, lies are, we work hard lie, to cover lies and to hide them. And the Holy Spirit uncovers them. Nothing uncovers the lie like the truth, right? Lies don't undercover lies. They just bury them. The truth peels it back. And so for you and for me, it means that we need the Holy Spirit to speak truth into us. Now, folks, the, last, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, but the last time that I just read to you in John 17, when Jesus prays in the very next chapter that to sanctify us, to make us holy in truth, the truth is in this book. You see, God doesn't just sit around and kind of, you know, we just drive through life and all of a sudden we just start discovering truth. To be honest with you, pridefulness in our lives want that. We want, well, I can figure it out. Oh, I got this figured out. No, it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit has to reveal it to us. And it takes work. This is where we don't like it, but it takes work. When I was in seminary, part of the, the coursework that I took required Greek and Hebrew. I took two years of Greek and a year of Hebrew. And the, the first year of Greek was accelerated because they assumed that I had had Greek in my bachelor's degree. So they did basically two years of bachelor's degree Greek and one year at the master's level. So I had two years of it. And I kind of I liked it. It connected with me. It just, it's linear. It's just it's not really that complicated to understand. It's just a lot of stuff. And so I was a little psychotic. And after I graduated, like a year later, I took a year off. And I went back and did an extra year of Greek of independent study. I went and studied like Greek lexicography, which is a study of words and formations and all of that, and Greek exegesis and all of those kinds of things. I ended up teaching Greek along the way. The first year of Greek was affectionately called by students. It was called baby Greek. Not because it was easy, but because you had to stay up with it all night. Like you just had to carry it with you. And it was like a baby to me. It was a little little book, and I took it to church. I mean, every little minute of just memorizing, 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 reading. And like, oh my goodness, it just it was just a lot of work. Never once did I just slip it under my pillow thinking that I could just go to bed at night and it would just by osmosis pop into my brain. Or I could just, you know, put it in front of me and not open it and thinking that I would somehow get it. Here's what I'm saying by this, is that the Holy Spirit does teach us truth, but you and I have to lean into this book. God took the time, thousands of years, and went to great lengths to produce to us a book that is 100% true. And for us to think that we can figure out how we ought to live life without cracking this thing open is not only foolish, it's kind of arrogant. It's kind of like, you know, my kid, you know, has something I want him to do and, and, and just saying, Dad, I don't need to read the instruction manual. I'll go do it. None of us in this room ever did that ourselves, by the way, ever. Well, I can figure it out. I got this. I don't need any help. And we go and do it and we make a mess. Listen, folks, God wants to, for you and I to experience truth in every area of our life. All of us go through, we're going to experience pain because that's part of the human experience, especially the simple human experience. But a lot of times we go through pain unnecessarily so. It's because we are acting on lies. You see, God wants there to be truth to speak into our heart, things that we believe. 
He wants that truth to speak into our heart with the things that we feel. He wants that truth to speak into our relationships. He wants that truth to speak into our finances. He wants that truth to speak into every area of our life so that we know how to live. And that truth is not just facts that we know. It's not a theology list. Yes, that's a part of what we understand is true. But he's talking about a way to live. He's talking about living out our faith before a holy God and how we're to act and how we're to respond and how to be a part of Him. He wants to reveal that truth into our lives so that, that we live completely differently. And that's how our lives are changed in every single way for the rest of our life. Folks, God has invested us in His Word and He's given us the Holy Spirit to experience that. And the last thing, and I've got to share this quickly, is not only does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin, He guides us into truth, but what He does toward Jesus is He glorifies Him and reveals to us everything that He has. He says in verse 14, Jesus says, He will glorify Me. The Holy Spirit does not glorify Himself. He tells us what's up with Jesus, not what's up with Him. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all the, the Father has is mine, and therefore I said He will take what's mine and declare it to you. You see, we as a church should focus on Jesus because that's who the Holy Spirit focuses on. But some, sometimes churches of our, our ilk, of our nature, minimize the Holy Spirit and are almost afraid of the Holy Spirit, and we should not be. The Holy Spirit is amazing and works in some amazing and at times strange ways and all of that. But always he points back to Jesus. Always he points back to God's Word. He never does anything apart from those two things, if you will. And then he glorifies. So he takes all that belongs to God the Father belongs to Jesus. And all that belongs to Jesus, the Holy Spirit communicates to us. See, God's wanting to reveal everything to us. His nature and to share Himself with us. There's no greater blessing in the world, truly, than that. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And He gets to do it in all of our lives who are followers of Him simultaneously. If Jesus were still here, we would all be frustrated. On my phone, I would be like, well, I texted Jesus today to get an answer, and He didn't get back to me. And I called Him, but it was busy. I mean, we would be like frustrated because God would be in one person. But because the Holy Spirit lives in each follower of Him, we all have 24-7 access. <laughs> no waiting. And He speaks in a language we understand <laughs> with an accent we get. And He reveals all of that to us. This morning as we celebrate, celebrate excuse me, the Lord's Supper, I want to read and unpack that for you just a moment. You know, the Lord's Supper Jesus gave to us is a reminder a tangible reminder of the center of our life. Thinking back to, to the woman, Carol, that I talked to, or Alice, excuse me. She said, oh, that's so deep. And I'm thinking, no, that's not that deep. Even a child understands it. You just have never heard it before. Because God wants the fact that our Lord Jesus died for us and rose again, and He redeems us. He wants to be that at the core of our love and to be at the forefront of our mind. That's the stuff that God takes and gives to us. 
Listen to what Psalm 103 says as you think about celebrating this supper together as we take the bread and the juice as a reflection of the body and blood of Jesus, what sacrifice did for us. But listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 103. It says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. In other words, from judgment and separation from God. He redeems us from the pit. And He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. It means He gives it to you even when you don't deserve it and puts up with it. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not always nag and bring that onto you. Nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Folks, He does that because of Jesus. Unfortunately, the uh, Alice whom I talked to, she thinks she's everything is okay with God because she loves God. And I told her differently. I was nice about it. Like, we're all sinners. And God has to forgive us. He can only show that love and that mercy and that just separating from the sin as far as east is from the west, infinity, because of Jesus. And it's because it's when we know Him as our Lord and our Savior and we surrender our life to Him, all of that grace that Jesus purchased on the cross washes over each of our soul. It doesn't get divided up. It's not like God ekes out a little bit, you know, that you just get a little drop, drop of grace because that's all He's got to go around. You get the whole bucket full. You get the whole thing. Every one of us. Father, we thank You for the new covenant through Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. Thank You, Lord, that it's by faith that we are forgiven, by faith that we are saved, by faith that our lives are changed, Thank you that it's through the obedience of Jesus that we are made new. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.